Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley. In this episode, you're going to hear a conversation Peter Kadzis and I just had with Eitan Hirsch. He's a political scientist at Tufts and the author of a new book titled Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action, and Make Real Change. The book is an indictment of the way a certain segment of society, specifically well-educated white liberals, tend to approach politics right now. According to Hirsch, their MO is heavy on a fundamentally passive sort of engagement and light on actual meaningful activity. But as Hirsch notes, other groups do politics differently, and he's got some good examples from right here in Massachusetts. Take a listen and be patient. Our Zoom connection is a little spotty at times, but Hirsch has a lot of interesting stuff to say. Can you explain to me how you came to focus on this particular topic? I I was watching an LA Public Library interview that you did in which you noted that this is not usually the kind of thing that you specialize in. So what's the origin story of your decision to focus on the way different groups of people practice politics now? Yeah, so I I did want to take a a step away from the sort of narrow statistical hypothesis testing I do and look at basically all of the literature of what we know in political science and sociology, like about people doing politics. And, you know, you look at news consumption and how people are doing that. You look at activism, you know, things like online petition signing. You look at the strange ways that people vote, like only in these elections that are big and not ones where they can be influential. you look at how people act as as kind of partisan cheerleaders, and I kind of had this realization that it just doesn't look like politics, what most of us are doing. That it's most people engaging their headspace and politics are really engaging it from, you know, as a perspective of a hobbyist, someone who's like following some big, important, interesting thing. They're interested in learning facts, but they're not interested in like accumulating power. And I thought that was strange. Um, In some ways, the parallel that's in one of the chapters of the book to religion uh, played early on in my thinking about this. So, you know, the same class of people who spend the most time learning facts about politics are also engaged um, increasingly in what we call spiritual but not religious uh, engagement, Um, not participating in any organized religious life, not kind of obligating yourself to other people in the community, but trying to extract spiritual connections, you know, through, through whatever, very individualized. And it's really focused on like essentially college educated white liberals. These are the people who do that. And you see the same pattern emerge of how they do politics. This religion parallel ends up being like a, a short chapter in the book, but you know, it's, it's a key to the origin story because it's really the same, same phenomenon you see in politics. I'm not trying to get you to rat out any friends or family members, but were these trends, things you became aware of sort of with detachment or in the abstract, or are there conversations that you've had with people you know or people you happen to be talking with for a professional reason that really brought these dynamics to the fore and made you want to dive in deeper and kick them around? I mean, I would say like, personally, almost everyone I know is more from like the hobbyist world than the activist world. I'm not from a from the world of organizers or anything like that. And so I see a lot of people who are kind of, you know, big, uh, listeners of NPR, readers of New York Times, and uh, they, they, they're talking about polling. Because I'm a political scientist, a lot of times people will come to me and be like, oh, you know, what do you think about Nate Silver's latest thing? And um, that stuff's never particularly been, been interesting to me, I guess. Um, I'm also um, not particularly 
partisan or ideological. I would describe my own politics as quite moderate. Um, and so like the, the, the partisan cheerleading or, 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 or the kind of like really just um, partisan hatred that I see people spew just never really spoke to me. So I guess this contributes to my interest in the topic. I think I just see a lot of energy spent in ways that don't seem like strategic or goal-oriented, but in a way that people hope they are. You know, I make the analogy to sports sometimes. Like no one who's watching SportsCenter every day thinks they're playing football. But I think in politics, there are a lot of people who are spending an hour to a day um, thinking and talking and reading about politics. And they, they feel two things. I think they feel some sense of like anxiety that like there's all these problems in the world and they don't know how to do anything about them. But they also feel like this is the thing they're supposed to be doing. What they should be doing is like watching in a, 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 you know, a congressional hearing all day. And since Trump, I mean, really on the left, you see this, like, you know, I, I, people who, I think maybe in the early uh, Gorsuch hearings, the Kavanaugh hearings, you see like people I know who work as lawyers or in business who like, you know, they say, they tell me like, oh yeah, I spent the whole day watching a C-SPAN video of, an, of, a, of a hearing. And they felt like, I think they would describe it as some kind of civic obligation, like to, to be attentive to what's going on. And to me, I think, if I reflect on the goals that they have in mind, whether that's um, electioneering goals or policy goals, it's very hard to see how they can make any headway on it by, by kind of paying attention to what's going on in Congress. I was really struck, positively Im impressed by your definition of politics, you know, the methodical pursuit of power to influence how the government operates. I, I grew up in Dorchester, a working class neighborhood. I, I describe it as a GI Bill neighborhood, um, you know, full of veterans, most of whom wouldn't have gone to college if it hadn't been for the Second World War. And politics was just part of the fabric of the community. People going door to door to collect signatures for Mr. Keenan, a neighbor who was a state representative, or even the act of putting up a lawn sign on your front lawn, which might today seem like, well, that's like virtual politics. No, it isn't because other neighbors will ask, hey, why are you supporting that bomb? Or positively, you know, I'd like to know more about him. But it was part of the fabric, just as going to church every Sunday or temple every Saturday. I lived right where Irish Catholic Dorchester met Jewish Mavipan, literally. Our house was right on the line. The, the world of politics Peter described as a world of a local politics where people have some connection to, uh, you know, it could be a state legislator, a city councilor, and, and the politics is the politics of neighborhoods. And, you know, I think um, most people's connection to politics today is not like that. We've had this huge nationalization trend. People have no idea who their state rep is or what a state rep does or what the city council does. You know, you have people who spend two hours a day consumed in politics and like they can tell you a lot about, you know, the Mueller report or something like that, but they can't tell you a thing about what's going on in their community. And what's strange about that is for people, particularly on the, on the left, if you ask them, like, what, what big issues are they concerned about, they'll say things like um, racial equality or the environment or, you know, things that really do have a lot of, um, of things that can be done at the state and local level. But they're just not attentive to that at all. I would say that the, um, 
the stories in the book, there's in, in the book, there's uh, seven stories of organizers, uh, three of whom are, are from, from uh, Boston or, or nearby. Um, and they all have the flavor of the kind of politics that I think Peter describes. So they're, they're, they're you know, they're current stories, uh, stories from Brighton, uh, this, uh, 98-year-old uh, Russian refugee who controls a thousand votes in his old age home, uh, a group oh, yeah. of Latino organizers in Haverhill, uh, uh, Kiris Matias, who she runs this uh, Latino coalition in Haverhill that's made a lot of headway. And, you know, I think it's the kind of politics that, that Peter remembers is just so distant from most people's politics today. Eitan, since we are locally focused, can you, for our listeners, talk a little bit more about who she is and what her MO is. Sure, so um, Kiris is a school bus monitor for a special needs school in Haverhill. She's lived in Haverhill for a long time. Her family's been there. She's um, part of this uh, Dominican community that's quite large in Haverhill. And um, Kiris has kind of always been involved in politics, uh, you know, someone who would like hold a sign or, or knock on doors for candidates, but she got very involved because her daughter, Juana Matias ran for uh, a congressional primary. Uh, Juana had been in the state legislature and then and then ran ran for Congress. And Kiris helped organize the Latino community of Haverhill, which is about a third uh, Dominican, third Puerto Rican, and um, a third other basically. And you know they started this Latino coalition and they they um, knocked on a lot of doors and. After that election, Juana, um, Juana had a great, good showing in that election, but she, she lost to Lori Trahan, who's now the member of Congress in that district. I covered that primary a little bit. Juana was a pretty impressive candidate. Yeah, Juana is very impressive. Um, she now works at Mass Inc., and uh, I'm sure she has a very bright future in the state. And she got, you know, something like 15% of the vote in a race where she was way outspent, and the winner got like 21%. So, so she did very well in that race. So after that election, uh, there was a feeling among the Latino community that they wanted to keep this coalition going because, um, you know, th it, there wasn't always before that as much interaction, for example, between the Dominican community and the Puerto Rican community. And there was a lot of issues, um, both very local and very national, that they wanted to work on. So, I mean, one of the ones is, uh, for example, about the school system. You know, there's a school that that according to um, Kiris, uh, the majority of the, the families were Latino families in this in this elementary school, and there wasn't a single person who worked at the school who could talk in Spanish to a parent. Um, so that seemed like a really concrete issue they they wanted to work on. Um, and then there was you know issues like what the local police department was doing in its interactions with the federal immigration office, ICE, uh, or you know there was there was an issue of and there still is an issue of underrepresentation of Latino community in city jobs, city boards, uh, elected offices. And so what this community does is they, uh, they're they very active. They have, they're organized electorally. So they have, they, they can get out the vote and and they also can show up to a meeting. So, you know, they'll have a meeting with the police department or with the, or with the mayor or the school superintendent and they'll get 50 people there. You know, all of a sudden, over a fairly short amount of time, they've become like a political force in the town and quite influential. And I think it's a good example of, of how organizing 30, 40, 50, 100 people on issues that range from local to national um, can give you, over a period short period of time, quite a lot of influence in a community. What happened to your mind to make the type of politics you just described something that is practiced by you know, maybe immigrant groups, more marginalized populations economically, as opposed to well-educated white people? How did that active element of political engagement get 
pulled away from or removed from the kind of people who frankly tend to listen to WGBH? I, I talk basically about three trends over time that have changed. One is uh, this cultural change, which is essentially like uh, the status quo has been pretty good for college educated white people in terms of the job market. There's been no military conscription for 50 years. And so um, I think when you look at the demographics of who's participating actively in community organizing, for example, so like racial minorities, much more likely than whites, uh, women, way more than men. Um, whereas, like, you know, in terms of online or learning facts about politics, it's, you know, college educated white men are by far the most kind of informed uh, at that level of like national drama politics. So I think one conclusion is essentially groups that have are, are pretty, you know, satisfied with the status quo, even if they even if they're going to say like, oh, yeah, you know, I hate Trump or polarization is terrible or, you know, I hate Obama, or whatever it is. They're not kind of really willing to work for it. The other two big things that have changed are technology. So, you know, for people who um, are very online, uh, they've shifted like all of their leisure, not just politics, to, to kind of shallow five-minute stints throughout the day. So you have a lot of desk workers now who toggle back and forth between their work and their hobbies, whether it's politics or sports or anything, throughout the day. So they might spend two hours a day, but all in these kind of short stints. So they can't really do anything um, um, productive. It's just more of like, uh, you know, they can, they can uh, tweet something. And the last big thing that's changed over time um, has been really the decimation of local civic and political organizations. In the book, I talk a lot about the kind of decline of local political parties, uh, the Democratic Party in, in, in Massachusetts. You know, in the book, I, I talk a bit about uh, my own town, Brookline, and, and, you know, kind of the very, very marginal role of the Democratic Party compared to um, uh, in some places across the country where you have, you know, extraordinarily active uh, political committees. But, you know, there's a bunch of policy reasons why political parties have been in decline. I mean, they've starved of money because of campaign finance reform that uh, limits the ability of national parties to feed money into local parties. They've been basically removed from all of their role in the primary process, right? Uh, you know, before 1972, local political parties had a big role to play in nominations and now they don't. So this institutional reason, which is essentially like, if you want to be engaged in politics, the organizations for, through which you could do that effectively have essentially been gutted. I tend to think of, particularly on the Democratic side, of Brookline as having a fairly active local, local organization, but maybe I just don't know what I'm talking about. So compared to other communities, Brookline does have an active democratic group. And, and, there's, and this is, by the way, not to criticize the people uh, in my town, many of whom are very active in politics. It's just a, not a lot of that is through the, the, like the official party. So, you know, in the book, I give these statistics, like in the 2016 election, the last presidential election, you know, the biggest expenditure the Brookline Democrats had was $1,300 to uh, the Szechuan Garden restaurant for their annual Chinese buffet dinner. Um, that like a lot of local committees, they, you know, they don't, they, they purposefully don't do anything in local politics. So for example, you know, Democrats will say like, my big issues are, for example, like issues of race or the environment or whatever. There's a ton of things that Brookline as a town votes on that affect things like the environment or race. But the Democratic Party of Brookline has made a decision that they don't want to get involved in at all in local politics because they don't want to, you know, 
uh, basically because most of the town is Democrat, so they don't want to be part of like um, intra-party fights. Uh, as a result, I think they, you know, so what they end up doing is they, they you know, they knock on doors um, for national elections and phone bank and things like that, and even for state elections, but they don't have um, a very regular presence. They don't have money. They don't have, you know, you know full-time organizers and office space. Um, if you look at some of the, the Democratic committees I, I follow in the book, one in Washington County, Oregon, one in Davidson, North Carolina. These are, are organizations that have monthly meetings with 50 or 100 or 200 people um, that have a big budget that do work, that endorse candidates in, in local nonpartisan elections because they have a perspective. And basically nowhere in Massachusetts do you see anything like that. Your book seems very reminiscent um, in a very focused way of many of the points that Robert Putnam made in Bowling Alone. Is that a comparison you'd welcome or reject? Yeah, I'd welcome it. I think Putnam's book was published in 2000, and it really tracked, and with just amazing data, the decline of in-person civic and political and social engagement. And the story there was basically a story of technology in part, that TV replaced a lot of people's in-person social and political engagement. Uh, and the other story was essentially that the World War II generation uh, came back from the war unusually energized to be engaged in communal action. Um, and essentially, like, no one since then has done that. I would say that, I, in some ways, I think my book picks up a little bit where that book left off, which is what has replaced um, what has replaced, you know, real community activity has been this kind of hobbyist activity, which is, it's, um, it's mostly online, uh, or through, through consumption. It involves people sharing and talking about politics a lot in, in what looks like a social way, because it's online, but it's, it's very focused on national drama and horse race stuff. Uh, it's not focused on any ways that people could engage on with a plan, like here's our five-year plan for making a change on something. Uh, so I, I would like to think that uh, my book kind of picks up where, where Putnam's book left off. In Boston, there seem to be two political parties. There's the party of the Boston City Council, and there's the party of the mayor. And at the moment, the party of the City Council is very activist, progressive with a capital P, the most left-leaning in my experience. Mm -hmm. And it'll be interesting to see in the mayoral election that's that's coming up, how things turn out. Because I, I think the party of the mayor tends to be more old-fashioned. It's not that the progressives are political hobbyists, because they have actually harnessed social media in a very effective way. But party of the mayor, on the other hand, is, is, is sort of like, we'll see if they're the silent majority. I mean, I think this kind of hobbyist versus uh, organizer mentality emerges on all left, right, and center. Uh, I think there is a large class of, of people on the far left who they actually couldn't be bothered with city council because all they can think of is, you know, some international climate thing. They, they really are quite nationally focused. Meanwhile, there are others who I think um, are quite serious about getting votes for local contests. Um, we all know that, you know, for elections like off-cycle 
municipal elections, turnout is so low that power really does flow to the organized. And um, there are folks who are, I, I share your view, I think there's a, increasingly a group of folks on the, who are on the more ideological left who are getting organized and they're counting votes. Um, and I think that had been the domain of, the, of uh, more of more moderates in the past. And I think what happens among moderates, and you see this Demo among, I think, Democrats focused on state or national stuff is you, you see a lot of people who say they're concerned about polarization, for example, um, who you know are more of the Biden voters than the uh, Sanders voters. But um, this is where you see a lot of people like really not willing to get off their couches because you know they they might think politics as the domain of of ideologues increasingly, and so and you can see this in the in the Republican Party too. So what will be interesting to see going forward is whether the mayor's wing of the party um, continues to have strong ties that can keep getting those votes banked, or whether maybe a you know a challenge to the mayor from the from the left or from a more activist wing of the party that wants the city to do more to be more proactive on things um whether they will get more votes you know but to me like those are both the politics of vote counting <laughs> it's uh it's not it's that's that, that's where politics is as opposed to the politics of having big ideas that are, are never going to happen there are boston city councilors michelle Wu comes to mind so does lydia edwards who are very attuned to national political trends, but work very hard to try to translate the national agenda into a local agenda. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and they're the ones who I would have mentioned too, although I don't think an exclusive list. Oh, no, not at all. Abby. Yeah. I realize your book is focusing on long-term trends and developments, but I can't ignore the news that's right under all our noses, the, you know, the COVID-19 crisis. What effect do you think the pandemic is going to have on politics over the next couple of years? For one thing, I think we might see a, a, a quite a decline in turnout, particularly among uh, well, among everyone, really. And so I think there will be increased power to those who are, are sufficiently organized. Um, I think we're going to see potentially like really different outcomes depending on the political leadership of the states. I mean, we've had states that have suffered and not suffered or that have not yet suffered. We've had states where the political leadership have taken different approaches. And so I think we'll see this is already a politicized issue because there's been a lot of politics and and how different governments respond and so i think we'll we'll you know we'll see increasingly we'll see consequences of that i would also say that for me this is really um i think a lot of people who are who are not fans of president trump have um have pointed out that you know there's been a real lack of kind of top down leadership but i think what the 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 crisis has shown is that it has shown the importance of bottom up leadership that is you know an individual school or town making um a, a deliberate decisions about this and of course states and um and i think in some ways it's drawn more attention to state and local politics because because of that. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that will also have long-term consequences. You have people all over who are not just watching President Trump, but they're, you know, like listening to what their governor says every day. How would you rate Baker's, Governor Baker and Mayor Walsh's respective performances? 
so far so good. I don't I don't have much to I don't, I don't personally have much to complain about. It's a terrible crisis, and they're I think they are attentive to the news and getting good advice. I mean, I think we're lucky here that we have many people would agree that the most influential. Uh, non-political voices in the state are coming from the healthcare industry and from universities. And I, I think that uh, I, have, I have a lot of confidence that both uh, Baker and Walsh are getting lots of good advice and are, are smart enough to take it. What advice would you give to people who find your diagnosis troubling and would like to start practicing politics in a more substantive and meaningful way? The first thing is, you know, recognizing you have a problem. No, it's, you know, it's recognizing that the role of a citizen is not to pay attention to important things, but I think to, it's to be important. And that means putting yourself in some kind of community where you have a role to play, where you can move votes. Um, you think about these these state and local races across the state that are decided by 100 votes, 1,000 votes. There's actually so much room for people to move politics in, in a direction if they want to. And I think the first step is really deciding that, like, if you are the kind of person that's spending an hour or two a day on politics, there's really um, uh, quite effective ways you could do that. Um, and, and none of them involve, like, you know, watching cable news. The second thing I would say is... Um, is changing news habits. I'm sure I'm, I'm sure you'll be fans of the following line, but it's I really believe it, which is that we really need to pay a lot less attention to national news and a lot more to local news. If you're the kind of person that feels like you're a news junkie, but really doesn't know the first thing about how politics uh, works in your community, how power flows in, in your town uh, or your neighborhood of Boston, I think you can make a news consumption change. And the third thing is like, even right now during coronavirus, there's a lot of ways to learn about not only what the news is, but how to get involved, community associations that are running Zoom events that are, that are you know, how-to guides and, and, and a lot of that. I mean, I think reorienting news consumption and political activity towards practical engagement, uh, when the time comes where all the dust settles on coronavirus and we can see people again, I think uh, that will help people be positioned to spend their time more effectively. Eitan Hirsch, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. It is honestly kind of inspirational to hear the message that you're putting out there. So thank you. My yeah, pleasure. Thank Thanks for having me. Thanks. And that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Thanks to Tufts political scientist Eitan Hirsch for joining us. Again, his new book is Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action, and Make Real Change. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to The Scrum, rate us, and talk back to us. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter is at Kadzis. And our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.